All right. Welcome to tonight's Bible study. Got to start off with a little country music. There is a reason for it. Don't worry. We're not just playing random songs. There was a conversation that was had before the service began, which led to the song Country Roads, West Virginia. And so we just couldn't help ourselves. We had to play it. And boy, did we enjoy it. Most of us in this room enjoyed it, right, Sam? Most of us, not all of us. But thanks for being with us tonight. We are in our Bible study on the life of Christ and moving right along. Let's go ahead and pick up kind of where we, where we left off. We're going to do some quick review. So Jesus Christ was talking with his disciples after there was an argument among them. So the disciples are having issues. And these issues are, they are greatly concerned about who was the best one. And this bothered them enough where they turned it into, I don't know that I'd say, you know, outright yelling. I, I doubt that is the case. I'm sure when I say disciples arguing, I think it might have been more of a debate, not so much of a name calling and fist throwing. But these disciples are, um, they are trying to determine who would be the best then and in the future. So Christ knows what they're saying, and he addresses it, and he says, guys, let me tell you some things you need to know. And so the text following is, I believe, needs to be filtered through this idea that Christ is dealing with a, le a conversation about leadership. So in Matthew chapter 18, I want to read the first part of this section, verse 1. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of him. So other passages, other gospels give us a little more context and tell us that the disciples were, were debating this amongst themselves. And then Jesus addresses this issue. So as they are having this conversation and they say, Who's the greatest? What, what does it mean to be the greatest? The text following is the answer of Christ. So I stated last week that we need to view Matthew chapter 18, 3 and on as a discussion of Christ on what it means to be a spiritual leader, on the qualities that Christ expects to see in the life of a spiritual leader. Now, let me clarify you, for you. Spiritual leader, it does not mean only pastor. I am a pastor. I am a spiritual leader. But if you in any way are leading anyone towards Christ, you are also a spiritual leader. Maybe not as a profession, maybe not as a career choice, but as a Christian, if you've got children in your life, your children, someone else's children, any children that look up to you and you are leading them towards Christ, you are a spiritual leader. As a Christian, last week I stated that if you have a friend or family member in your life that is, that is trying to determine truth about God, and you are there to show them the truth about God and to show them the way to Christ, who is the way, then you are a spiritual leader. Because a spiritual leader is someone who leads others towards Christ in the spiritual sense. <laughs> and so with that in mind, what is Christ looking for? Jesus mentors his leaders in the passages following. We talked about originally how Christ is from the very beginning taking this young child and essentially stating that if you do not have faith like this child, then you cannot enter the kingdom. He also states that the kingdom is made up of children and those who have faith like this children. He states specifically in verse number four, whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in heaven. So the verses three and four and five all wrap around this idea that we need faith like a child and humility to be a strong leader. Now, 
You can't be saved without faith, but you can't be a strong leader without faith and humility both. When I say strong leader, of course, again, I'm talking spiritual leader. Can someone lead a company, a CEO, a secular company, and not have either of these? Yes, they could. But as Christians, our definition of leadership is different because what we're trying to do with those we're leading is different. The world's idea of leadership is to accomplish a goal, to get somewhere. A Christian leader must have a broader definition than to just get somewhere, to accomplish a goal. For the Christian leader, we have to recognize we're not just going somewhere, we're going somewhere with people. And you don't want to lose the people on the way. What impact are you having on the people as you go somewhere, as you get there? And then for the Christian leader, it's not just somewhere, but Christ specifically. We are going to Christ. We are taking people to Christ, and we want to help them as we take them to Christ, not just drag them kicking and screaming to Christ. And that requires faith in Christ. It requires the ability to not just believe that you are saved, but serving faith, this idea that Christ can get you through every day. This idea that Christ has a bigger plan than your plan, a better plan than your plan. Knows how to get there. You don't. You follow him. Faith and then humility, knowing you are not the one in charge. God is the one in charge. You're the servant. You are not the one that knows everything. God knows everything. And whatever we know spiritually is because God told us. So that is necessary for spiritual leadership. We ended with this idea of unity. In Mark chapter 18... I'm sorry, uh, yes, Mark chapter 9, excuse me, uh, Mark chapter 9, verses, verse 28. So I'm going to turn there now. Some parts of this portion of Scripture are mentioned in certain Gospels and not in others. So let's turn to the book of Mark, chapter 9, and picking up in verse 38. And Jesus answered him, saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name. And he followed not us, and we forbade him because he followed not us. Now, if you look at verse 34, you'll see the context in a different gospel. They held their peace, for by the way, they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. So that's what I said earlier. And then I, I'm not going to reteach last week's lesson. I just want to, I want to review quickly what I said last week. The apostles seemed to think that Christ's group was made up of Christ and them. And so if, if people didn't follow them, they weren't following Christ. And they include themselves in this. They say, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, but he didn't follow us. They actually imply, it seemed, Christ, that they were on your side, but they weren't on our side. It seemed that they used your name, but they didn't get our permission to use your name. It seemed that they wanted to be part of you, but not part of us. So we said, stop. Because if you're not part of us, it doesn't matter if you're part of Christ. We did the right thing, right? That was, that was the good way. Good leadership, right? And Christ says, wrong. Not the right way. In verse 39, he says, stop forbidding them. There is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. Christ brings it back to himself. He says, you guys, Christianity is not about you. Christianity is about me. I'm the Savior here. I'm God, not you. It's my group, not your group. You get to be part of my group. I'm not centering my group around you. He says in verse 40, for he that is not against us is in on our part. So here's what he's saying. In verse 39, I told you last week that Christ essentially breaks down. If he's with me, he needs to be with you. 
If she's for me, then you need to let her in your group because your group is defined by me, Christ, not by your philosophy, not by your likes and dislikes, not by your fellowship. Well, they don't go to worship with us. They don't, they don't uh, go to our particular church building. They're, they're not members of our church. Christ says, who cares? If they speak in my name, preach in my name, heal in my name, do miracles in my name, cast out demons in my name, if they're following me, you can't say no to them. You need to unite with them on what is really important, Christ. Because it is by Christ we are saved, not by our philosophy, not by our church membership, not by the, the type of church we follow, not by the clothes that we wear to church. These things don't save us, so let's not make a big deal out of these things. Let's make a big deal out of Christ. That's where I ended last week. So let's move on. Oh, actually, you know what? I'm sorry. I actually did get into protecting the innocent last week as well. Uh, I, I apologize for that. So we're going to be in Mark. We're already in Mark. Let's just stay in Mark, chapter 9. And now let's take a look at 42. And uh, whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and were cast into the sea. And if they hand offend thee, cut it off, it is better for thee to enter into the life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched. And I had stated last week that it's okay to be bothered that the innocent are harmed. In fact, I would be concerned if you're not bothered. It's okay to be bothered by that. It's okay to look around the world and to see that young children, teenagers, even young adults who have not done wrong to others are severely wronged by others. It's okay to be bothered by that. God is also bothered by that. It is not okay to blame God for the bad choices of others. Well, you could say, and as many do, can God stop them? You have to answer yes. Of course, God can stop them. That's the only honest answer. They would say then, if he can and he doesn't, he's not the kind of God I would ever serve. If God could stop an adult from abusing a child and chooses not to, what kind of horrible God do you serve anyways? What answer do you have to that? What response can you have? Well, it bothers him. I mean, it is true. It does bother him. That's not enough for these people. These people being anyone who is speaking in such a way of God. You can tell them God's bothered by it. They would say, well, if he's bothered by it, he should do something about it. And many Christians are left speechless. They don't know where to go from there. In fact, some Christians who have so very little knowledge of God's word and reason behind God's word are themselves swayed by such logic. And they themselves say, you know, you're right. God, God's bothered. God can, but God doesn't. You know, you make a good point. What is up with God? And they themselves start to doubt the goodness of God, to doubt the heart of God. So let's go back to that statement, God can, God's bothered, but God doesn't. God can do something. You need to expound on that. Not what he doesn't do, but what he could do. So you ask the person if they're really wanting to have a conversation. Most don't. They just want to fling accusations and move on to the next person. But those who are sincere in their seek for knowledge, in their search for knowledge, in their desire to understand God, then have this conversation with them and say, all right, 
what is it that you would want God to do? And they would say, very likely, stop the person. All right, fair enough. You don't want God to stop them. In what way? Do you want God to stop them by killing them? Do you want God to stop them by, by changing them against their will where they don't want to do these things? But it's not because they've chosen not to. It's because God has forced them to feel and think a different way. God himself has invaded their thoughts, their emotions, their desires. And in that invasion, God has changed them against their desire. Or do you want God to take away their ability to choose altogether? That they can't choose bad. Which of those three options do you want? They would probably say, well, I'm not looking for God to kill them, although some might say that. You can say, well, then don't ever complain about God killing people in the Bible because, you know, that happens a lot. God does actually enact such extreme judgment as death. We do see that happening. And if that's what you think is, should be done, then don't complain when it's done. Well, I don't want God to take away their, their desire uh, to make choices. I don't want God to take away their free will. I don't want God to change them emotionally without their desire. So then what's left? Is God going to put around them some kind of invisible wall where when they try to hit the child, they hit an invisible wall instead? Is, is that what you're wanting? Do you want God to provide some kind of miraculous protective covering over a child so that no one can harm the child? Yes, that's what I want right there. I want a miraculous invisible wall that if someone tried to hit a child, they would hit an invisible wall and that child would be protected. Okay. What about other sins that God can do something about? Should God put an invisible wall around everyone where no one can interact with you in, in hurtful ways? Do you really want God to perform a miracle where we have choice, but our choice doesn't have a consequence because God keeps our choice from actually following through. I can choose to hit someone, but I can't actually hit them. I can only hit an invisible wall. Is that real choice? Is that what you want? A bunch of invisible walls around everyone where people's choices don't actually matter. Because here is how God is going to fix that problem. You can tell them. God already has an answer. You can ask what you want. You can desire what you want. But God has a solution to the human condition of abuse. And it is Christ. He is the solution. Well, what about Christians who also abuse? Yes, Christ is still the answer. They may have accepted Christ as their Savior, but they haven't chosen to really let Christ show them a better way in this life. Christ is the answer for the saved and the unsaved both. Well, it's not enough. Because even with Christ, even if you believed in Christ and the fact that he came to this earth, it's not enough because abuse still happens. Yep, God knows that. So God has a bigger solution. What is it? What's God's solution to fixing the problems of mankind and the abuse of mankind? To start over. That's his solution. He was giving mankind time to join his side. Because Christ sees a lot clearer what you are telling me. Christ sees and has seen for some time what you see now. That mankind has a problem. A big problem. A heart problem. An abusive, hateful, hurtful problem. And without eliminating man, that problem will remain. Can God invade the will of man and take from them the opportunity to choose? Yes, he can, 
but he will not because God did not create robots and isn't going to start now. Can God create an invisible wall around people so that we have seemingly, we seemingly have the option to choose, but our choices don't actually have consequence? Could God do that? Yes, but that's not how God designed life, to give us a shadow of free will when our free will doesn't actually and can't actually have consequences. That's not how God operates. You have free will. You have the option to choose. And unfortunately, man's heart is corrupt. So God has already given one solution, Christ. He is the way. He is the answer to our problems. And for those who refuse Christ, God has a more severe solution, and that is reset. But when he resets, when he starts over, those who have not accepted Christ will end up eternally in the lake of fire. And for one reason, Christ has not started that reset yet, and that is He loves the world too much, even an abusive world. He loves them too much to start that early. He is giving the world a chance to find the first and better solution, Christ, rather than the one forced upon them, a complete reset of everything and the unsaved going to hell. They may not like the answer, but Christian, that is the answer for the abuse of the innocent. What I said last week was, as a leader, we need to understand that reasoning. We need to understand that logic and God's plan. But I said last week, as leaders, we can never be part of the problem. We must always, always be part of the solution. And I stated that if Christ is answering the disciples' question to who is the greatest leader, and he's giving a series of statements afterwards, all of these statements have to be taken in the context of mentoring leaders, future leaders. And what does Christ say to these future leaders? You are better off committing suicide than jumping in the ocean than you are being a leader and either involving yourself in the abuse of the innocent, specifically children, or allowing it. And to me, they're both equal. For a leader to turn their eyes and allow an innocent child to be abused in any manner, to, I would put them on the same category as participating in themselves. So God gives the answer. It's pretty severe. He actually states you're better off uh, cutting off that member that would allow you to abuse a child than living your life whole but being spiritually lost. So is God bothered by the abuse of the innocent? Oh, most definitely. And God has a plan for that. But it's not a plan the world will like. As leaders... We need to go with the first plan while we still have time. And the first plan is to turn hearts towards Christ. That is the better solution. (laughs) That is the long-lasting, eternal, healthier solution for those who accept it. But I can tell you right now, folks, you as a leader are not going to be able to turn the hearts of people to Christ when you are part of this problem. When you are allowing abuse of the innocent, when you are abusing the innocent verbally, physically, in any way, you're going to have a very difficult time convincing people that Christ loves them when they see this. Was there abuse of the innocent in the early church? I imagine so, because I know the human condition. 
And I can tell you, if I was one of the apostles and I heard this message, I would be very, very um, watchful over the innocent within the congregation God gave me. And I, to my shame, as a leader, feel like today's 21st century leaders are not nearly as watchful as they should be. I'm not saying we are not here at Meriden Hills. I'm saying as a spiritual leader, I am part of a group of men and women that I feel like we have dropped the ball in this area too many times. I am not saying any leaders at this church. I'm saying leaders in the world. And that can no longer be the case. So leaders of your family, leaders of schools and leaders in churches, let's make a change. And let's just not stay away from abuse, but stop turning the other eye when we see abuse. Man's eternal soul. We're in Mark chapter 9. Let's now go on to verse 49 and 50. For everyone shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Salt is good. But if the salt have lost his saltness, wherewith will ye reseason it? Have salt in yourselves, and have peace with one another. Well, that seems like a very confusing uh, two verses. Could you, right now, if I asked you to explain what these mean, could you say anything? You could say, well... There's a passage in Matthew chapter 5 that talks about salt, and it seems to be a parallel. And yes, that's true. There is a parallel. But could you give me the description behind these two verses? You know, I think most people look at verses like this, and they take the easy route. And what's the easy route when you come up against verses that seem a little confusing? You skip them, and you move on to verses that are a lot clearer in the, in the instruction and you know what I'm telling you? You're going to skip a blessing. You're going to skip the opportunity to really dig deep. And as the book of Proverbs gives us some instruction, it is to the glory of man to seek out wisdom. You are missing the opportunity for some personal glory. Uh, glory meaning an honor, a lifting up. You're, you're missing the opportunity for personal honor and personal lifting up, personal encouragement by God himself. When you are not willing to dig a little deeper on what might seem to be harder passages. This does have an answer. And it's not as cryptic as you might think. So let's go to verse 49. Everyone shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. All right. What does that mean to be salted with fire? If you look at the previous verses in verse 47, it's saying if your eye offends you, pluck it out. Uh, better to enter the kingdom um, with one eye than having two eyes into hellfire. Verse 48 where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. All right, so in the context of verses 47 and 48, then comes verse 49, and the first part of verse 49 states that you will be salted with fire. Who is the one being salted with fire? Well, the one being salted with fire is the one in verse 47 and 48 who was experiencing fire. This, of course, is the eternal lake of fire. This is hell. And so... Uh, Jesus Christ is stating in this passage that those who go to hell will be salted with fire. What does that mean? Well, salt preserves. Salt keeps something lasting. It keeps it going, specifically meat. When you rub salt into the meat, it keeps it going, right? So if the fire is the thing being salted that gets the idea of unquenched fire, salted fire means it's not just for a time, it keeps going. So Jesus Christ is stating that everyone, everyone in verse 47 and 48, 
who does choose a spiritually dark path against God, they will be salted with fire, an unquenchable fire that is eternal. That is what verse 49 is saying. Then it goes on, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Now he's talking about the good, comparison and contrast. The good side is, God says, those deeds done, those acts of service done, those sacrifices done in my name, as he stated earlier about these guys who were casting out devils in his name, right? These deeds done for the kingdom of God. He says, these also will last. So you got a choice. You can choose eternal destruction that never ends, eternal pain if you go that route that never ends, or you can choose Christ and with it the sacrifices you do for Christ that also never end, eternal reward, eternal blessing. I'm not saying that God will pour out on us you know, money in heaven. Money will be of no value in heaven. The rewards for me in heaven will be in the presence of Christ. The rewards for me in heaven will be the people that I'll be with for eternity. Those are reward enough for me, but those are reward nonetheless. And the sacrifices we make for Christ in this life are salted by God and will have eternal value. The investment you make in people, whether they accept it or not, brings glory to God's kingdom. And when the investment is accepted and the impact you have on their life is for Christ, then you really are gaining blessing because their lives are changed and redirected towards Christ. And God says, essentially, in other words, my word will not go void, right? God is going to act on the truth. God's going to do something with it. And when it is sacrifices and deeds, that will be for eternal good. Verse 50, salt is good. But if the salt have lost his saltiness, wherewith will ye season it? Meaning, if the salt has lost the ability to withstand corruption, if the salt has lost the ability to hold back corruption, what are you going to use it for? Wherewith are you going to use it? What would you use it on? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. Have salt in yourselves, meaning make sure you keep within yourself the ability to fight lies, to fight deception. Have salt in yourselves. Remember, the purpose of salt is to keep something from corruption, to keep it lasting longer, to keep it from being destroyed. So as Christians, what is it that the salt inside of us is attaching itself to? As Christians, what is it that we're trying to maintain a long-lasting life? What is it that we are applying our salt to? I surely hope it's not your money. I hope it's not your bank account. I hope you're not trying to salt your bank account. I hope you're not trying to salt the, the, the items that you've gathered in this life that you're trying to hold on to and not let go of. It's one thing to lose the ability to salt altogether. But then once you recognize, you know, as a Christian, I have the ability to cause things to last longer, to, to fight for things and to give them a longer uh, impact, a bigger impact and a longer life. The question is, what are you salting now? For me, I want to make sure that the salt that God has placed in my life, the salt in me, is salt that is being applied to things that deserve to last. Applied to things that will do better for the people I love, not harm them. In this verse particularly, it says, have peace one with another. So God has given you at least one thing in verse 50 that could and should be salted. One thing that as a Christian, we should work towards lasting longer, and that is peace with each other. Peace with your fellow man. So when it comes to peace, 
How does one attain peace? How does one keep peace in a relationship? Well, I can tell you right now, the first thing is humility. Because the Bible states in Proverbs, with pride comes contention. Without pride, there is no contention. If you want peace with people, you need to be humble. Because pride will not keep peace. It will destroy peace. I believe if you want peace, there needs to be love. There has to be a motivation to have peace with someone. If you hate someone, it's going to be really hard to be at peace with someone. Humility keeps hatred from taking over. Love is the positive that you give out. It's not enough to just not hate someone. You need to love them actively. And so if you want to salt something, then salt peace by having long-lasting humility, long-lasting love, and I believe you will find peace to come very easily and very often in your relationships. Humility and love wins the day. With those people you just can't stand sometimes, humility and love, the relationship will last a whole lot longer and even give them time to readjust themselves. Let's go back to Matthew now, continuing his mentorship of the apostles. Matthew 18 gives us some verses that the book of Mark does not give us. All right, verse 11. For the Son of Man is come to save that which is lost. How think ye if a man have an injure a hundred sheep, and one of them be gone astray, doth he not leave the ninety and nine, and go into the mountains, and seeketh that which is gone astray? If so be he, that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoiceth more of that sheep than of the ninety-nine which hath went astray. We often think of that verse personally. I was the lost sheep. Christ came for me. Nothing wrong with thinking of it that way. It's true. I was a lost sheep. You were a lost sheep. Christ came searching for you. Christ sent one of his servants to talk with you and gained your heart by loving you first. I totally believe that. That's a great way to see this verse, but you're missing out on what is the actual context. Jesus is not talking to us as the sheep. Jesus is talking to us as the leaders, saying, this is my heart, and as a leader, I want you to have the same one. Leaders, apostles, you are called to reflect me. Here you are complaining about who's the greatest, wondering who's the greatest. I want you to commit to my mission. Don't create your own mission. Don't make a religion out of your philosophy, your mission. No, mine is sufficient. Follow mine. And what is that? Seeking the lost. Seeking those who need me the most. Chase after them. Too many churches, they sit back and they wait for the world to come to the church. Whereas God is very clear here. If you're a leader, I want you chasing them down. I want you going out to them, showing them love, showing them truth, showing them peace, right? We saw earlier in Mark, showing them me. Follow my mission and don't wait for them to come to you. The wandering sheep isn't going to find you by chance. Go out and chase down the wandering sheep. The problem with this verse is when it's misapplied. When a leader is given people with which to serve, and one of those people is trying to do harm to the group, causing offense, causing hurt, 
uh, abuse, right? We talked about earlier, abuse. And the leader just says, oh, but that person's just a lost sheep. So I need to invest more in that lost sheep to bring them into the fold. And the fold just needs to take the abuse for the sake of the lost sheep because that lost sheep needs Christ. And they would even probably turn to this passage to encourage themselves and remind themselves how much the lost sheep needs Christ. Except in this text, I don't see the lost sheep abusing the 99. I don't see the lost sheep causing offense to the 99. The lost sheep is just wandering off on their own in its own self-destruction. Because other passages give us direction on what to do with the one causing abuse and hurt to the 99. First of all, they're not called a sheep. You know what Christ calls them? Wolves. He calls them snakes. He calls them abusers of mankind. He calls them other names than the lost little lamb. So do not consider the wolf to be the lost sheep because you will allow that wolf to eat all the other sheep as a leader. You need to separate the abuser from the remaining sheep, not Consider them to be lost and allow them to hurt the remaining sheep in a desire to see them come back to Christ. You will lose all the sheep. So we must have the courage and the wisdom to know the difference between a lost sheep and a wolf in sheep's clothing. And then deal with it in the appropriate manner. A wolf in sheep's clothing needs to be treated with extreme, extreme consequence. Not let them run rampant in the group God has given you, your children, your marriage, your church, your friends. Do not let that wolf destroy that group. And then recognize when it's a lost sheep, not causing offense to people, not causing abuse and harm, just a wandering sheep that, that doesn't know where they're going and what direction in life they're heading that's the one you chase after. That's the one you bring into the fold. That's the one you love on. And you let Christ change their heart and show them the way. Loving on an abuser, I'm not saying you can't. I'm not saying you shouldn't. That is a unique relationship that has to be separate from the sheep. You cannot bring the abuser into your home hoping that your children will win them over. No, your children will be harmed by this abuser. You cannot bring the abuser into your friendships unless they are very strong friends who themselves are able to handle an abuser in the way the abuser needs, not the way the abuser wants. You will find one of two things happening when you do this. The abuser, through some miracle, will change, or the abuser will run. Because most abusers aren't looking to be coddled. They're looking to be enabled. So if you're going to help an abuser, then you give them the choice. You either take what you need from me or you find someone else because I will not enable your abuse. Not in my relationship with you. Not in my friendship. Not in our family will we enable abuse. Not in our church will we allow abuse to happen. God's word tells us what you do with abusers of the innocent. I am not stating as a church we start throwing people in the ocean. I don't believe that. I am saying metaphorically we deal with them with extreme prejudice, extreme consequence. You don't hug them and enable them into your group to hurt others. So it's a separate relationship from the sheep, and you will either find that abuser changing or running. 
And if they're not doing either, I can tell you what you're doing, right? Don't, don't need to figure it out. Don't need to think deeply on it. If an abuser is not changing and the abuser is not running, then you are enabling the abuser. You are not helping. So it's time for you to step away and let someone else who can help them do the hard thing until that abuser is ready to change. Do not think of abusers as lost sheep. They're not. But those who truly are lost, that is the mission of Christ. That is his heart, and that must be our heart as well. So let's go to Christians in conflict now. Again, talking about leadership, right? This is in the context of how leaders should handle conflict. Why? Because if you're dealing with people, you're dealing with conflict. If there are humans in your life, there are issues in your life. And those issues come wrapped in the skin, flesh, and bones of the human before you. And by the way, you bring your own issues to the table as well. So do not think yourself special or unique to be a leader and never have to deal with conflict. If you are a leader of children, you must know how to deal with conflict. If you are a leader of any adult of any age, conflict will arise. And you know what really burdens me? Time after time after time, I am finding adults don't understand this basic truth of how to deal with conflict. They do not follow the word of God in this area. And the conflict becomes so large, it destroys everything in its path. When it could have been dealt with on a smaller level, why wasn't it dealt with? Cowardice. The leader was a coward. The leader had no backbone. Ignorance. The leader had no experience, ability, knowledge with which to address the conflict. They just sounded stupid when they opened their mouth because as they're talking to these two people who are yelling at each other, the leader sounds naive. That sounds like an eight-year-old trying to convince four-year-olds of how to play nice together. These are 35-year-old men. You can't treat them like four-year-old children. And the leader is just showing their ignorance as they open their mouth. Ignorance keeps them from being able to deal with conflict. Pride. The leader can't deal with the conflict because they know deep down in their heart they're part of the problem. And they have made their own mistakes where no one's going to listen to this leader. The leader can step in and say, hey, 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 let me take care of this. And they're going to look at the leader and say, you're worse than us. Look at your marriage. Pull that log out of your own eye before you start helping us. Look at the way you abuse your children. You're going to tell me how to talk to this person? I see how you yell at your children. No, thank you. I'm not interested in your help. Their pride destroys their ability to address conflict because their pride ruined their testimony or their pride makes the conflict worse when they do get involved. There's many reasons why a leader would not deal with conflict, but none of them good reasons. Especially when God actually gives you specific direction as a leader on how conflicts ought to be resolved. Let's see what he says. Verse 15, moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, remember, he's talking to leaders, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. I have discovered in my life that the older you get, the more imposing you are, can be to younger people. 
children, teenagers, younger adults. I'm not saying always. I'm saying can be. And you want to be cautious as a leader. Understand, first of all, that your position itself comes with a lot of weight to most people. That automatically they are a little put back, uh, wary, maybe even cautious of what you say because of the position of leadership you hold. Now, you can destroy that by bad character, by bad actions, but generally speaking, someone with authority, right away there's a, there's a, a weight of authority that they have and place on others, and people can kind of see that. The danger is when you take your authority that is already heavy and you bring other people and compound that, people will feel like you're ganging up on them. It's bad enough as a principal if I was to bring a student into my office to talk to them about an issue at Mid-State Christian Academy. They, they're already a little, most students are already a little very anxious, not just a little, very anxious. They're in my office, I'm the principal, my authority carries weight, and so they're anxious. What if they walked in and I had me and Pastor John and two teachers in the office for one teenager? What do you think they'd feel then? Such extreme anxiety, they probably wouldn't be able to hear anything I had to say. They would feel like they're being ganged up on, and rightly so. And I get the need to protect yourself. In fact, I was speaking with a pastor very recently. He doesn't go to our church, so not one of our pastors. I was speaking with this pastor, and, and we were talking about this passage. And I, they, there was some advice given. I said, look, you know, if, if there is an issue that needs to be addressed, you need to go and talk with this person and have a conversation and let them know, this is what I see. It needs to be addressed. If it's not fixed, then the next step is I'll be coming back with more people, and we'll address it again. If it doesn't get fixed, church discipline will happen, and you will lose membership at that church. This is a different church, different pastor. Another pastor uh, gave some different advice, and he said, you know, I see what you're saying, Russ, but have you considered that what if the person says something different than what you say? And what if they lie about you? And what if they, they, they spread rumors about you and it hurts your testimony? He says, I advise that, this is another pastor saying this, I advise that you take someone with you and that you don't go alone. I, I responded, said, look, I understand what you're saying. I get it. If you feel like that's a need, that your testimony is at stake, then I can see why you might do that. But here's my thing. God's word specifically says, go by yourself first. So for me, as a leader, if at all possible, if, the, if, if it's not possible because I am concerned for my testimony, I get that. But if at all possible, I'm going by myself. Why? Because that's what God says. And he has good reasons for it. I think I know what they are. Because you are more likely to find success with someone if you're coming at them as someone who wants to help them than rather gang up on them with two or three others and say, look, it's our way or the highway. Figure it, or fi figure it out or get out. And I've got three people backing me up on this. You are not likely to win them over. You might as well just send them a letter and just say it's done and say you're not coming back because that is going to be the end game. Now, unfortunately, in a lot of conflicts, it usually does end up in a broken relationship. It usually does end up with someone exiting the relationship offended. That does happen often. But don't force that result by doing something different than God's instruction here. There is a chance at restitution there is a chance at healing if you don't throw your weight around. Don't throw your authority around. Don't bring in your gang of friends or fellow leaders to force this person into control. 
They have a free will. And you, on your own, in love and humility, go to them personally and explain to them what is the issue. Explain to them the answer to the issue and give them a chance. They may not see it that way. They may still blame you. Fair enough. But in your heart, you know you did your best. Because it escalates pretty fast after that. If you've given them a chance, humility and love, without throwing your authority around, without ganging up on them, you've given them a chance, and they refuse the chance and continue in their abusive, offensive, sinful behavior. What is the next step? Well, verse 16 If he will not hear thee, take with thee one or two more. That's a fast escalation because I'm telling you, once you do that, it's pretty much over. Most conflicts, when it's a two on one side and one on the other, one on the other is very likely going to say, I don't have to deal with this. I don't have to deal with you guys. I'm out of here. Like if that's how you're going to be, you're going to bring it to this level, I'm I'm done with you. That is most likely how it's going to end up. If there's any chance at maybe a second conversation by yourself, I would even take that chance before I brought in the two, uh, one or two others, if I felt that it might help. And I have done that on occasions. I have talked to someone by myself more than one time, and sometimes it did help, and sometimes it didn't. And I can tell you, there's a story of something that happened almost fitting this scenario, where this is some time ago, someone was making choices that was hurting the church. And I went to them, and I asked, and I said, this was dealing with um, things they were teaching. They were teaching false doctrine. They were not a teacher at our, our church. This is Marion Hills. They were not a teacher here. They were in no way, they weren't even a member. They were just a visitor. They were a visitor. But they were, they were spreading lies and deception. They were spreading cultish ideas that When I say weren't in line with Scripture, like were the opposite of Scripture. These were things that were against the Word of God, and they were handing out literature and talking to people in the lobby, before and after services, trying to convince people of a way other than God's way at our church. And I went to the person. I said, you got to stop. You can't do that. I mean, they weren't a member, but I said, you want to come here, you can. You can come here, you can worship with us, you can be here, but you cannot be passing out literature that is against God's Word. You cannot be trying to tell people your way, which is different than God's way. You can't do that here. Well, the person continued. I went to them again a second time by myself and said, you got to stop. And I said, here's what's going to happen. If you keep it up, our next conversation will include more than just me. I will be bringing one of the other pastors. Continued on. Next conversation was with me and Pastor John. And we told him, if you do it again, I will get up on Sunday morning. And I will tell the entire congregation. And I will point to you and I will say, this person is spreading lies and is not speaking the truth. And they, I'm not going to say they can't come back to this church, but I'm going to tell you, whatever this person says, do not listen to them. I will say that on Sunday morning publicly and point to you. Well, that fixed the problem. You know how the problem was fixed? He left, didn't come back. That, at that point, was what I was hoping for. Because I'm telling you, once you get to this point of someone else and saying this or else, most people are just going to leave. But you know what? Sometimes with conflict, that is what has to happen. But it is the cowards, it is the ignorant, it is the prideful that allow these people to continue causing conflict, that the conflict grows into something much larger than you ever thought it could.
or would. Have the knowledge, have the humility, the love, the courage to stand up and deal with conflict in an appropriate way. Your initial desire is restoration. Your initial heart is that person makes better decisions. But once you recognize they won't, you must change your motivation. At that point, your motivation becomes protection. My initial motivation for this man was I wanted to help him, and I actually spent a long time talking with him about truth, his beliefs versus the Bible. I gave a lot of my time having those conversations. My hope was he'd see truth and begin to follow it. It didn't happen. At that point, my conversations changed from helping him change to protecting this body of believers. And so that is how I proceeded, and you now know the end of the story to that one. He says, verse 16, you bring the others now to protect your testimony and to ensure that what is said isn't just hearsay, but actually others can attest to it. If he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. So some people say, and I heard this said, in fact, teenagers ask some really great questions. When I've taught this to teenagers before, there's usually them that ask these kinds of questions. They say, hey, what's the point of dealing with conflict? Because when you, in my opinion, the teenagers say, they say, you know, you, you confront someone and it just gets worse. Like you tell them to stop and now they bully you even more. You, you have a conversation with them and they're meaner to you than they were before. And here's what I tell the teenagers. I say, well, you don't go into every conversation about conflict expecting it to fix the problem. You hope for that, and if you attain it, great. What does the Bible say? The Bible says in verse 15 at the end of it, you gained your brother. So great job. That's awesome. That's the initial what we want. But you have to be willing. Here's what I actually have. I remember saying this very specifically to a young teenage girl. This was years ago. I said, you have to be willing to go all the way. Once you've started the process, you cannot stop midpoint because you're right. It will be worse because now you are the enemy and they will attack you harder than they did before. So once you make the decision to go down this path, you cannot stop halfway. You got to go all the way. And I said, for you as a teenager, as at Mid-State, I said, for you, that means this. You go and try to deal with this problem on your own first before I get involved. Because I tell you this, once you involve me, we're going all the way. And this student will either be forced to fix the problem or this student will be dismissed. I told the young girl that. The girl talked with this person and was able to fix it between the two of them. But the truth is still the same. As adults, too many adults, they start this process because they know it's what God wants. They don't have the courage to complete it. Well, I'm not a snitch. I'm not going to tell the pastor on this person. I'm not going to, you know, rat them out. I tried to fix it. It didn't happen. I'm just going to leave it alone now. Here's what I tell people. You know this person is abuser. You know they're a liar. You know they're a deceiver. You're going to let them run rampant in the church? Well, they won't hurt me. That's not the point. There's other people in the church than you. Well, I'm strong. I can handle it. What about the new Christians who come to our church, new members that aren't strong and can't handle it? You're going to let this person kick them out, abuse them, hurt them. Do what's right, if not for your sake, for the sake of those others in the church. Well, my, my uh, mom can't hurt me. Yeah, but your mom can hurt your grandkids if you're not willing to take that to the full level. Well, I would never do that to my parents. Well, then you're not following the Word of God. 
Your parents don't get a pass just because of your parents. Your siblings don't get a pass because of your siblings. Your kids don't get a pass. Take the conflict to the full level. They either adjust or there are extreme consequences. I'm not saying you kick your your eight-year-old child out of the house. Obviously, there's a different way to deal with that. But I will tell you, yeah, you kick a 28-year-old, yeah, they're going to cause abuse to your family and they're 28 years old. That relationship needs to change. There has to be some boundaries there. It'll break your heart to do it. But if you've got more than one child, then you need to make decisions that's best for the whole family, not just that 28-year-old. Now, look, if I'm a parent with a 28-year-old and that's the only child I got, well, then I probably would do things differently because there's no one to hurt, right? That that 28-year-old is not going to hurt me, not going to hurt my spouse, and they're the only child I got, so I'll deal with them differently. But if there's other family involved and my 28-year-old child is hurting them, I've got to think of my whole family, not just that only child. How much more when they're not family? How much more when when it's members of a church, when it's friends? How much abuse happens in God's church because leaders look the other way? Going back to what we started with today. We're not willing to stand up, be courageous, and protect the sheep. And we say, I won't be hurt, but that wasn't the point of this passage. God is not saying this so that you aren't hurt. You're the leader. God is saying this so that the offense doesn't continue on to others. This person needs to be called out. Give them a chance for restoration. They don't take it. You take it all the way. And that relationship is severed and adjusted. One more, and we're done. We'll go through this one a lot quicker. Verse 18 through 20. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say unto you, that if two shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father. Verse 20. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Now, this particular lesson on leadership, I am of a strong opinion, is directly towards the apostles. I do not believe that Christ is giving this passage to all leaders of all time. I do not believe that Christ is giving this passage to all pastors, priests, popes, bishops, elders, whatever you want to call them. I don't believe 18 through 20 applies to me. I believe... Christ was saying to the apostles, you're going to be the, the, you might say, founding pastors of the church, right? I'm going to let you have strong authority at the beginning of the church, at the birth of the church. They're going to be in its infancy, and it will need strong leadership. And God is saying, I'm giving you apostles that strong leadership. I'm giving you a lot more authority, apostles. And so apostles on this earth, during the early stages of the church, if you say that someone is out, someone's out. He's not saying regarding heaven or hell. He's saying if you make the decision that someone exits the church, that's your choice, and we, your, the church sticks with it. If you say no, the offense can be forgiven. They can be brought back in. He's saying, all right, then bring them back in. Unfortunately, a lot of pastors, you know what's funny? They completely abandon the first part of this chapter. They don't apply any of the mentoring that God gives in the early chapter 18. You don't see the the desire for peace in Mark chapter 9. You don't see the love. You don't see the salt, the, the, the maintaining of good things. You don't see dealing with conflicts in healthy ways. You don't see them seeking after the lost sheep. You don't see any of that. What you do see is verses 18 through 20, and they say, hey, God gives me complete authority if I say it, it's happening. If you don't like it, get out. That's like the only part of this leadership training that they walked out with. They take the part they want to listen to. They take the part they want to apply, forget the rest. And ironically, it's the one part that doesn't apply to them. 
God has not given me this kind of authority, 18 through 20, where I am the voice of God, where I speak God's will, and if I say it, you've got to do it. That is not my role. But I strongly believe it was the role of the apostles. But these men were extremely in tune with God. (laughs) These men were hearing God on a regular basis through inspiration of Scripture, the Holy Spirit speaking to them. I mean, look at the first century church and the way these leaders live their lives. I mean, there is no doubt in my head that these guys were strongly connected with God, and I do not believe they were abusing the authority God gave them. So this was a unique command for a unique time to a unique group, the apostles. Do not ever let a spiritual leader take verses 18 through 20 of Matthew 18 and tell you, They have authority over your life because of this text. They don't. We're going to end there tonight. I appreciate you joining us. I hope you'll see us again next Wednesday as we continue our series on the life of Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for the passages of Scripture that we saw tonight, the reminders as leaders, as Christians, how we ought to conduct ourselves, how we can deal with the conflicts of others, the priorities that we need, priorities being peace, in relationships, seeking out the lost. I pray that we would have the wisdom to separate the lost sheep from the wolf in sheep's clothing and the courage to deal with conflict in healthy biblical ways. In Jesus' name.